Welcome to On The Ledge Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Perrone, and this is the place where being called sappy is a compliment. It's Potting Mix Ingredients Part 2 this week, so we'll be finding out what the initials DE stand for, loving Laker, and considering Koya. Plus, I answer a question about watering a lemon. Or rather, a lemon tree. I mean, watering a lemon's going to do nothing. And we have our first new style, Meet the Listener, with Teresa. I hope you enjoyed the midweek bonus number six, in which I unveiled my crowdfunding campaign for Legends of the Leaf, the book that I'm hoping to publish about houseplants and the stories behind them. It's been Amazing! The support that I've had already and thank you to all of you who've already pledged. I'm a little bit overawed. I'm just going to check. Let me just go and see where we're at. I mean, not that I'm checking this like every second of the day, but I'm just going to go and see where we're at with it. And let's see. Yep, we're on 13%. So thank you to all of the 87 people so far who have supported the book. A long way to go, but it's great that within a couple of days of launching we're already got that kind of support so thank you to everyone who's already pledged if you haven't already pledged there's plenty of time to do so i'm not going to bang on about it too much in this show i will include a link in the show notes if you want to find out more and if you've got any questions about how it all works then do drop me a line because obviously crowdfunding a book is not necessarily how you expect these things to go down so Do ask if you've got any queries, but thank you to those of you who came straight in and pledged. And do pass the link on to any plant-loving friends who might not listen to the podcast, because I'm hoping that this campaign will go far and wide beyond the shores of On The Ledge to reach lots of other houseplant fans too. Now, I know you've all been getting excited about the new Meet The Listener question, so without further ado, I thought we'd start with that this week, and we're going to hear from listener Teresa. In case this is your very first time listening to On The Ledge, I better explain what Meet The Listener is all about. Oh, welcome, by the way. I mean, it kind of does what it says on the tin. We meet a listener and I give them five questions to answer to the best of their ability to give an insight into their planty lives. And it's a really great way of connecting up all the different listeners to On The Ledge from around the world. So if you'd like to be a part of this, please drop a line to On The Ledge podcast and we will send you instructions on how to take part. It is super, super easy. You just need a smartphone. And who hasn't got a smartphone these days? Okay, without any more ado, let's hear from Teresa. My name is Teresa. I'm 27 years old and I live in rural northern Wisconsin, close to Michigan. I love outdoor and indoor gardening. Houseplants really just help me get through the winter and keep plants around me constantly. I have just hundreds of houseplants. Uh, nothing super cool or exotic yet, but I just love tending to them and, and propagating them. 
Question one. You've been selected to travel to Mars as part of the first human colony on the Red Planet. There's only room for one houseplant from your collection on board. Which plant do you choose? This question is interesting. So I think if I were to be going to Mars, I would want to bring something that I'm fairly confident would do pretty well. Um, something I could propagate quickly and just surround myself with. So I think I might need that on Mars. Um, so I would bring my my Marble Queen Pothos. Just a robust, beautiful plant that I think would just outshine any other plant on a, a new planet. Question two. What is your favorite episode of On the Ledge? My favorite episode of On the Ledge is probably episode 118, Surviving the Winter, um, Arctic Gardening, and selfishly, it's because it really applies to my situation here in Wisconsin in the U.S. Uh, long winters, two short summers, and a lot of forced air in the way of heating and cooling. So that episode helped me really iron out a few issues I had going on. Question three. Which Latin name do you say to impress people? I really enjoy the Latin name Hoya Carnosa Compacta, or even better, Hoya Carnosa Compacta Variegata. I mean, it's like you're saying a full sentence in Latin, but not really. Um, it's just fun to say, and I think Latin names are important for really nailing down the idea of a plant. You know, if someone said, oh, what's a money tree? You know, that could be confused with, you know, the Chaflera, the Pilea. Um, Latin names really help to get around those issues. Question four. Crassulation acid metabolism or glutation? I think that crassulation acid metabolism is just mind-blowingly cool. Like, how did plants even get to that point? It's absolutely crazy, but I'd have to pick gutation in my own life and experience. Uh, it's just cool to see, and it's really a beautiful effect. Question five. Would you rather spend £200 on a variegated monstera or £200 on 20 interesting cacti? I would rather spend 200 euros or in US dollars. I looked it up. It's around $230, which I've never spent in one go on one plant or multiple, but I'd have to go with the Monstera. Cacti don't agree well with my climate. Um, I've kept a couple alive for a couple years now, but I would really love that variegated Monstera. I don't have it. It's pretty hot right now. And I know I can keep it happy and grow. Thanks, Teresa. I hope everyone liked the new question. Hopefully it keeps the spirit of the original question, but perhaps takes it in a slightly different direction. Well, to Mars, actually, is the direction it's heading in. I'd particularly like to hear from listeners in parts of the world that haven't yet been represented on Meet the Listener. I don't think we've had any Swedish growers yet, unless I'm misremembering. What about you New Zealanders? Come on, let's hear from you. If you haven't heard part one of my A to Z of potting mix ingredients, then do go back and listen to episode 156 for coverage of 
A to C, that's Akadama to charcoal. We're actually continuing with C today because there's one other ingredient that has the letter C as its first letter, and that is Koya. What on earth is Koya? Well, it's made from coconut husks. It's often being touted as a sustainable alternative for things like peat moss. And you'll often find that it comes stocked as a hard brick, which you then have to put in a bucket and add water to it so that it suddenly fluffs up and makes a much larger amount of compost. So it's really convenient if you are living in a flat or you've got small amounts of storage space or you want to order growing media through the post because these lightweight compressed bricks are a very good way of getting your coir. So is coir more sustainable than peat? I would say it's definitely more sustainable than peat, but there are downsides to its production. And as you'll remember from last week, helping me on these potting mix episodes is Vlad Nikolic, also known as Mr. Houseplant. And here he is to tell us about the pros and cons of coir. There are also a few issues with using coco coir, and uh, I don't know if people are generally aware of them. One is that it can potentially contain a lot of salt. So the first thing you should do when you buy coco core, after you rehydrate it, you need to thoroughly rinse it to get as much of that salt out. Um, and another problem, which mm, I suppose, I mean, you've been using it, you're, you're aware of that, is that it doesn't contain nutrients. So you have to fertilize all plants that, all plants that are potted in coco core, if you're using exclusively coco core. Um, so you can either use a 100% Cococor mix and fertilize your plants regularly, or you have the option to mix cococor with a peat-based potting mix as they contain nutrients. So, for example, you could use one-third cococor, one-third peat-based potting mix, and one-third perlite, pumice, or sand to improve drainage and aeration. There is also an environmental issue with um, cococor production because uh, a lot of chemicals are used in uh, the production and then a lot of water has to be used to remove these chemicals and the water used to rinse them out goes back into the water that is being used by local communities so it turns out that the production of coco core is not as environmentally friendly as people usually think so if you're looking to buy coir it really is worth checking out the company you're buying from and where they're sourcing their coir from because not all coir is created equal so, for example, here in the UK, Fertile Fibre is a company that supplies coir and all its coir is certified by the Soil Association, which is a UK campaigning organisation for organic food. So their quality control is excellent and you can be assured that their coir is top quality and will work well for your plants. And they have full traceability so they know exactly where their products come from. If you're in the US and looking for coir, epicgardening.com guest of the show does have a nice guide to different coir products on his website i'll put a link to that in the show notes it's also worth bearing in mind that coir does come in different gradings so there is very fine almost dusty coir which is a replacement for peat compost slightly larger particles right up to coir chips which are about a centimeter by a centimeter I've used this on a couple of Hoyas and this seems rather good for plants that need a really, really porous uh, mix with lots of air in it. 
And then you can get the kind of fibres, which are often kind of matted into pots or into hanging basket liners. So again, look at the quality of the stuff you're getting and assess whether it's what you need. Because the gradation of the sizes of the particles will obviously affect the air holes and the water holes that are available for the roots to use. Right, moving on to D. D is for diatomaceous earth, also known as DE or diatomite. And this rock is very, very rich in silicon. If you remember back to the leaf botany episode where I discussed silicon with Dr. Julia Cook, well, this is a silicon rich potting mix ingredient. It's made from a sedimentary rock that is very rich in silicon. And this in turn is actually made up of the fossilized skeletons of tiny little algae. Now, diatomaceous earth is used in an awful lot of different products that we use every day, like toothpaste and cat litter. It's even used in the production of dynamite. But it hasn't really caught on tremendously yet as a potting mix ingredient. But as we heard in the silicon episode, silicon and diatomaceous earth being a good source of it are definitely on the up and up as an ingredient for potting mixes. You can get various grades of diatomaceous earth. The food grade DE looks really like flour. It's extremely fine. And this is eaten as a supplement by some people. I have no evidence to suggest that it's at all beneficial for humans to take. (laughs) So I leave that entirely up to you. I wouldn't recommend it myself. It is used by some people for worming animals. And some people use it in the dust baths of their chickens because it is meant to be good at getting rid of mites and things. It's a very fine powder, so you do need to be careful if you're using food grade DE. Ideally wear a mask because it's very easy to sneeze and just blow this stuff everywhere. And I do speak from experience. If you do want to mix it into a potting mix, I would highly recommend trying to get hold of some granular DE because this will be way, way easier to use. You could just pile up some of the food grade powder on the top of the pot. But as I say, it's going to blow away. It's not the easiest way to apply it. And I've also seen diatomaceous earth being sold in pellets as a slug repellent. So this is a product that's interesting to keep an eye on. We're still at the early stages of its development, I'd say. But do let me know if you're using DE regularly and what you've been using it for. Okay, I couldn't think of anything for E or F, so we'll skip straight on to G, which is for grit. Now, this is a bit of a mystery for uh, UK versus US relations because it seems to me that horticultural grit, as it's sold here in the UK, doesn't seem to be that available in the US as a product. What do I mean by horticultural grit? It's simply rock that's been crushed to a small grade that's, well, gritty. And what kind of rock is it? Well, it's usually either crushed limestone or crushed granite. Usually anything between one millimetre and six millimetres is fairly standard. It comes in a variety of sizes, depending on what you want to use it for. Larger sizes, possibly for mulching, the top of pots, particularly cacti and succulents. Smaller grade for mixing in with your potting mixes. The reason why you want to buy horticultural grit rather than any old grit is that this will have been specially washed to remove excess lime. You don't want your plants to get too alkaline, which can be a problem if you use regular grit. Just check the side of the packet and hopefully it'll tell you the pH level so that you know whether you can use it on your house plants. 
Most houseplants are looking for a pH of about 6.5, although there are some exceptions. Disadvantages to grip? Well, it's heavy. It's really, really heavy. So if you are moving your pots around a lot, you might find that's a bit of a pain. And of course, it's a resource that's having to be taken out of the ground and processed. So it's not necessarily that sustainable. What do I use grit for? Well, I do use it as a pot topper on cacti and succulents. Just gives a neat appearance and drains any water away from the top of the plant. The downside is you can't see what's going on with the compost below that. So it's harder to tell when your plant needs watering. I also mix it into some of my houseplant mixes, particularly if it's my cacti and succulents which live in the summer out in the greenhouse. They tend to be in terracotta pots and I will use grip in those because they're heavy already and it doesn't really matter how heavy they get. And I do tend to sieve that out and reuse it again and again. If you can't get hold of horticultural grit, you could just buy regular grit and give it a really thorough wash. And if you want to be very careful, test the pH before you use it on your plants. Right, we're now on J, which is for John Innes. And you may wondering, be wondering who John Innes is. Is he on Instagram? Well, no, he died in 1904 and that he basically left a lot of his money, which was quite considerable, to establish a horticultural institution. And so a charity was formed and the John Innes Centre is still going today, carrying out lots of vital research. In fact, we heard from Dr Enrico Cohen from the John Innes Centre in one of our Leaf Botany episodes. And in 1938, they published the John Innes Compost Formula. They did loads of trials, working out the best mix of ingredients, and they came up with three different mixes. And traditionally, the basis of every John Innes compost was loam, which is basically soil, although that's not always true today. If you're looking for John Innes compost today, you can get seed compost and Three different types of potting compost, number one, number two, and number three. As I say, they're all soil-based composts. I'll put a link in the show notes to a great RHS page which outlines the ingredients of these various formulations which you can mix for yourself. In terms of houseplants, you're really looking for John Innes number two, which is designed for established plants and including houseplants. I used to use John Innes number two for all my house plants, but unfortunately, most John Innes formulations still contain peat. And since I've gone peat free, I've stopped using it. I would love to find a John Innes formulation that doesn't contain peat, but I haven't so far done so. The benefit of a soil based compost is that it tends not to dry out suddenly in the way that things like peat and coir can do. They stay evenly moist and hold on to nutrients really well. And you might find a lot of different compost companies marking their products as a John Innes formulation. They're not all the same. So again, always check the small print, look at the packaging, see what it says, what's inside there. It may or may not contain peat and there's no legal requirement for particular things to go into a John Innes potting mix. So basically anyone can sell something that's a John Innes potting mix and it may bear very little resemblance to uh, the, the actual original formulation. L is for leaf mould. Now this is fabulous stuff. If you have a lot of trees in your garden, you can collect them up with a rake, stick them in a 
plastic bag with a few holes stuck in it, stick them somewhere out of the way for a couple of years, and hey presto, you've got leaf mould. It's even easier to make than compost. And the wonderful thing about leaf mould is it's a fantastic soil improver. It doesn't contain loads of nutrients, but it is absolutely brilliant for plants that might be described as woodlanders. So if you're growing things like ferns, they would love a bit of leaf mould in their mix. The only downside to using something like leaf mould is that you might bring in with it a few things like worms and also wood lice. You have to be aware of that if you're planning to use leaf mould. What I would do if I wanted to use leaf mould is lay it out in a very thin layer on a plastic sheet or a tarp in the sunshine and then any worms or anything that are in there will basically move away from the sunlight and then you can scrape away the top layer and use that on your plants. But do bear in mind, as I say, you might get a few hitchhikers. So that might be the price you have to pay when you're adding leaf mould to things like ferns. And now we come onto the subject of LACA. What is LACA? It's actually an acronym and I do love an acronym. And it stands for Lightweight Expanded Clay Aggregate. In other words, it's little round pebbles of clay that have been baked. They're incredibly lightweight. They've got loads of air pockets inside and they have loads of uses for houseplants. These are sold under a number of different brand names. I've seen them sold as Hydraulica here in the UK, Expanded Clay Pebbles, Laker. It's all the same thing. What do I use Laker for? Well, I use it on the top and bottom of pots. So I use it as a pot topper. I guess it might be doing something to stop fungus gnats laying their eggs on the surface, but I'm, I use it more for just making it look tidy stopping water splashing about and also stopping the growth of little mushrooms and things like that that you sometimes get in house plant compost and if I've got an inner plant pot and then a cash pot I layer the bottom of the cash pot with the laker and if I'm watering from the top and a bit of water splashes down into the laker it gets absorbed and the pot is not sat in water so it's handy for that I also do mix it into potting mixes too it's incredibly porous, as I've already said. So it's really good for adding porosity to things like hoyas and succulents that might need those extra air holes. Epiphytic plants, they love that air around the roots. And you can, in fact, grow your plants entirely in pure laker. This is not something that I've really experimented enormously, hoping to do an upcoming episode on it. But it's a really interesting way of growing plants and lots of people absolutely swear by it. So do report back if you've been trying this and tell me how it's working. It's quite a clean way of growing because you don't have soil slopping about and you just need to make sure that the laker is soaked in water and that you also add nutrients because of course the laker contains absolutely no nutrients. The other great thing about laker is it doesn't degrade over time. It'll look exactly the same as the day you bought it unless you stand on it, which I've occasionally done. So that's really handy for techniques like hydroponics. And you'll find that unlike soil, the, the compaction that you get with soil just won't occur. Those air holes will be there all the way along. So that's a, it's quite a convincing argument, really. Why am I not planting all my plants in Laker? Well, you know, we're all slow to change, aren't we? But I would definitely recommend dipping your toe into the world of Laker and maybe just adding a handful or two to the mixes of some of your plants and seeing how you get on. I 
had a lovely note from Crystal, who became a patron last week, saying, thank you for your marvellous work. I've managed to track down a second-hand copy of Dr. Hussein's Bible. His tome and the On The Ledge Pod back catalogue see me through all my planty pursuits. What a gift. Thank you for asking and answering all the important questions. Now, I have to say, if you don't have a copy of Dr. Hussein's Houseplant Expert, I know I'm pushing my own book at the moment, but you can get yourself a second-hand copy of The Houseplant Expert. Ideally, the gold-plated version is my recommended one. Please do get it because it's a really great book and reading it will give you an insight into my brain, which is always fascinating. So be more like Crystal and get yourself a copy of that, as well as uh, pledging for Legends of the Leaf, if you so choose. Thanks to new patrons this week, Hayley and Jessica, who became legends, and to the Cole family, who, after last week's question, gave me a donation on co-fi.com, which is, which is very generous, and you don't have to donate once I've answered your question, but it's most welcome if you do. Now, who remembers back to episode 99 with Lisa Eldred Steinkoff talking about houseplants for low light, in which me mention a plant called Nicodemia diversifolia, the indoor oak. Well, I had a nice message through this week regarding this plant. Melanie writes, saw this post today while looking for more on this plant. I have five beautiful Nicodemia diversifolia plants. The original I got from my mum after she died in 1976. I have had success with cuttings that I've started with a root hormone and then transferring to potting soil. I live in Chicago in the USA. In the summer, I keep them outside under a covered patio. In winter, down to the cellar where they do pretty well with fluorescent light 24-7 till spring. I hope this info helps a little. Well, I'm glad to hear that you, Melanie, are holding up the Nicodemia as a houseplant when all around you seem to have abandoned it. Perhaps there's a whole stash of these plants growing in places that we're not aware of. So bring out your indoor oaks, people, because I'd love to see them. And thanks for Melanie for getting in touch. And thanks to Liz from PA and Richard the Lion Dart, who've both left reviews for On The Ledge podcast. And you know what? Despite having dozens, if not hundreds of reviews now, my heart still sings every time I see a new one. So thank you to both of you. And now let's turn our attention to question of the week, which comes from Annie in California, and it concerns a lemon tree. And she's been struggling with watering because she's not sure how much water she needs to soak the soil of her pot. She's finding there's a lot of excess water that drips out and leaves stains on the patio, falling down to onto the neighbours downstairs. She's worried about the water stains and she wants to make sure that she's watering right. I think there's a few different issues going on here. If the water is coming straight through the root ball and not really soaking in, I have a strong suspicion that this plant may be suffering from a couple of different things. Firstly, the plant may well be root bound. So if the roots are filling the pot, the soil can start to become hydrophobic, which is where literally it repels water rather than soaking it up. And once soil has become hydrophobic, particularly when there's a mass of roots in there and the soil has become very compacted, The result is the water just zips on through the pot and doesn't soak in at all. So root bound in the pot and hydrophobia come together. And I think that there's a few different things that Annie can do here. One thing is is just to stick the whole thing into a washing up bowl or a deeper container and let it soak up water over a period of time. I have to say, just a little pet peeve here, please don't call this technique butt chugging. 
that's really wrong on so many levels. <laughs> I keep hearing people on Facebook asking about how do I butt chug? And I'm thinking, please don't butt chug. That's not right. You're watering from below. It's far more dignified. Anyway, so get your washing up bowl, stick the lemon pot, tree pot into there and fill it up, you know, halfway up the side of the bowl and let it soak in there for a good while. Then when it's been in there for about an hour, tip out any water and allow it, put it back in there, the, the bowl, let any excess water drain away. And finally, 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 then you can put it back on the patio once that drainage has happened. You can even wipe the bottom of the pot with an old rag to make sure there really is no water left. If you find that when you take the plant out of the pot, there's really not an issue with the plant being root bound. Soil may still be hydrophobic and you need to increase the amount of air circulation very easy to do just get an old kebab stick or chopstick poke 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 into i'm doing it now as i'm i'm, I'm miming it in fact i've even got the ch chopstick somewhere to do this poke those into the soil and it sounds harsh you will break a few roots but you will also introduce a lot more um porosity into that soil which will allow it to soak up the water so you can even do this while the pot is in the water poke with your chopstick and you'll find that it takes up a lot more water as a result. The reason why I can't really answer your question, how much water does your 10 gallon pot take? Well, it's so dependent on the kind of potting mix you've got, the temperature, the amount of wind there is, the air humidity. It'd be very, very difficult for me to say, oh yes, it needs exactly three gallons every five days. It just doesn't work that way. You need to keep an eye on your plant and assess how much water it needs. And the best thing to do is really to allow it to soak up as much water as it wants at every session so that therefore you're never, it's never going to go thirsty and also at the same time it's never going to be sitting in water long term. So that's what I'd do, Annie. I'd stick it in the old washing up bowl stick that chopstick in the root ball, repot it if it really is root bound and make sure that that water really is getting a chance to soak in properly. I hope that answers your question, Annie. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, do drop me a line. Love to hear from listeners. It's my favourite thing when a listener email drops into my inbox. And that address is ontheledgepodcast at gmail.com. That's all for this week's show. I will be back next Friday where we'll hear more from Mr. Houseplant, a.k.a. Vlad, and myself about potting mixes. Oh, I nearly forgot. Oh my gosh, I nearly forgot. This is so exciting. I have got Bantel's Sensation. It's in a box here. Look, sound effect. Um, I haven't opened this yet. This came from a lovely listener called Kiara. Thank you, Kiara. You are my hero. I did a swap with her. She got some Hoya fungi, I got some Sansevieria, Bantel's sensation. Can you believe it? My dreams are coming true. Thank you so much, Kiara, and to everyone who uh, does plant swaps with me. It's so much fun. And um, once I've unpacked this, I shall be putting this on Instagram. So do look out for my Instagram stories about my much-wanted wishlist plant, which is now in my possession. Cue evil laugh. Anyway, <laughs> that's all from me this week. She says, putting the box down. That's all from me this week. I will see you next week. In the meantime, have a great planty week with your collection. Bye.
The music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, an instrument the boy called Happy Day Gakana by Samuel Corwin, and After the Flames by Josh Woodward. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. See janeperone.com for details. <laughs>